0: I figured I'd probably work at least until our kids were out of the house. And financial independence, when I actually learned the term and the math behind it, I realized that we pretty much had it.
1: Hey, this is Justin Harvey, your host of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. My wife is an anesthesia resident, and I'm a financial planner, and I work with anesthesia and pain doctors as my clients. This podcast is designed to help the anesthesia community be informed about their careers, their finances, and more by taking important questions straight to the experts. Thanks for tuning in. This week, I talked to anesthesiologist and physician finance blogger, Leif Dahlin. We discussed Leif's personal investment philosophy, his experience doing locum tenens work, as well as how his parents' financial example gave him the tools he needed for economic success. If you've ever wondered what it takes to retire early as an anesthesiologist, you won't want to miss this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Anesthesia Success Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Harvey. Our guest this week is Dr. Leif Dahlin, who is a board-certified anesthesiologist based in the Midwest, as well as a prolific finance blogger known on the interwebs as Physician on Fire, where he pens a blog at physicianonfire.com. He reached financial independence after about 10 years of practicing anesthesia, all while raising two boys and doing lots of travel with his family. As a result of his financial independence, he recently switched to part-time in anesthesia, and he now invests more time with his family as he continues work on his blog. Much of his writing focuses on physician financial education, investing, and other issues commonly faced by physicians. Leif, thanks a lot for being here today.
0: I'm happy to be joining you. Thank you for the
1: invitation. So uh, we met at FinCon a few months back, and uh, I was there to try to do some legwork, to learn more about podcasting and in launching this show, wanting to not look like an idiot, <laughs> and uh, I was um, I was interested and amused to find that it seemed like anesthesiologists were well represented in the physician blocking space. Has, has that been your experience? I'm curious.
0: There are a handful of us, you know, any of the specialties that have more of a shift work schedule uh, does create some open time, you know, especially during the day to to do some sort of uh, uh, fun, different type of uh, thing like writing.
1: For yeah. Example. So tell me about how you kind of first got started in that. Was it something that you saw among some of your colleagues where you thought, I need to spread the word about being financially savvy as a physician, or was there a catalyzing moment for you? Yeah,
0: it, was, uh, it wasn't It was maybe one particular moment, but it, it sort of evolved from uh, once I was maybe five, six years into my career, I had been saving a lot of money, and I at some point realized I, I was a millionaire, at least uh, based on our you know, investments, and uh and I thought, okay, I got to do something uh, with with this money. It was invested, but maybe not in the most efficient way, not the most tax efficient, certainly. And and I discovered a few different sites around the same time. One was the Bogleheads. Heads, and uh, you know they talk about Vanguard uh, style passive index fund investing and, and keeping it simple, and and how that can uh, do as well or better than uh, you know actively trying to chase the best returns. And I had been doing that to some extent, but I realized I could save significant money with fees if I switched from a lot of the T Row Price active funds I was invested in to plain old boring Vanguard index funds. I also discovered, yeah, I discovered uh, the White Coat Investor uh, who was very active on that uh, forum. He had over 10,000 posts, probably over 20,000 by now on the Bogleheads. And his website uh, really taught me. A lot, and it was neat to see another doctor writing and talking about this stuff. And then a third site was Mr. Money Mustache, who is the most uh, popular and internet-famous financial independence blogger. And he talked about how you can make your money last uh, more or less indefinitely once you get to a certain point of you know, 25 times or more your annual spending. So if you work on that spending side and you work on uh, building up the big nest egg, work becomes optional. I thought that was pretty amazing and I hadn't really considered that. And I put it all together in my head and I, I did realize like I wanted to start financial independence blog from the perspective of a higher income professional. And uh, that's when my website position onfire.com was born.
1: Great. Yeah, I know. So obviously, as a physician, as an anesthesiologist in particular, one of the higher earning specialties, there are certain tailwinds that you get certain things that help you. <laughs> obviously, moving towards financial independence, if you have a high income, it's a lot easier. But there's definitely some headwinds, right? Culturally, your peer group, your coworkers, there are certain cultural expectations that you have to Jettison uh, and swim upstream in some regards to be able to make progress towards financial independence. So, how did you interact with that idea as a physician?
0: No, you're right. There are definitely, uh, you know, there's a societal image of, of what a physician uh, should be living like and what their house should look like. And to some extent, I had those visions too. And, you know, early on, uh, once I did settle down in one place, we built a really nice home on the water and and that, you know, ended up being a mistake when that hospital went bankrupt a few months later. Or I'm sorry, a few years later. Gosh, not a few months. But uh, it didn't last nearly as long as we thought it would. And so the dream house became a bit of a nightmare when there weren't any doctors to uh, sell a really nice home to anymore in a small town. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I had some uh, some headwinds there. But in general, I've kind of been a guy that that does his own thing. And and so I, I didn't feel any real pressure to have a, a really nice vehicle and, and take uh, the most expensive vacation. And Instagram wasn't a thing back then, you know, people posting pictures of wherever they are in the world. I still traveled a lot. We just, uh, you know, did it uh, at the three-star, places, not the five-star. Anyway, uh, yeah, so uh, my wife, too, you know, she d- is not uh, one that likes to waste money. We We spend intentionally, and it's just kind of worked out.
1: I want to come back to that point about um, collaborating with your spouse in a moment. But first, I'd love to hear about sort of your journey to financial independence in the context of your medical career. So maybe take us through training and your first role or two as an attending, some of the inflection points there, and, uh, and how your career dovetailed with your uh, sort of financial convictions.
0: Sure. Yeah, I uh, did my training in Gainesville, Florida, at the University of Florida, uh, which is a college town and a fairly low cost of living area. I actually bought a condo there that we kept for uh, about five years after we left, and we had rented it out. wasn't a great investment, but it, it did well enough. And I got really good training, and I felt comfortable coming out of there, going just about anywhere. And so I did locums for two years out of residency, and uh, that was a really good way for me to not only see a variety of different practice types, do some hands-on anesthesia, do some supervising, work in government facilities. I was at the VA for nine months in Pittsburgh and and work at smaller community hospitals too. So I kind of ran the gamut for two years until we found a spot that uh, made sense for us to settle down close to my wife's family. We also were able to live really inexpensively because the locums agencies that I was working with, they pay for your uh, housing. They We'll provide you with a rental car. Some of them even gave a per diem for meals. So our living expenses were next to nothing, and of course, I was making four figures a day when I showed up to work. So uh, we, you know, we we banked a lot of money those first couple of years, enough to uh, you know buy that waterfront lot and put some money towards the house we were building. So that's the beginning. Um, then I settled into a full time job, found a different full time job when that one fell apart. Uh, but eventually, I, I realized, like I said, I, I had seven figures in our investments. And uh, once you have that, then your money, you know, in some years works as hard as you. You know, I think it was uh, three four years ago, we saw 30% plus returns on the year. Um, so I'll bet my money made more money for me than I did working as an anesthesiologist. Now, 2018 is not quite as, uh, as good in that regard. But yeah, you know how it is.
1: Great. So you touched on something I want to circle back to. You mentioned locums. Um, For for a young physician, a resident or fellow who's considering, you know, wanting to maybe travel around, see some different practice styles and opportunities, it sounds like you would recommend something like that as as far as a a good way to do that?
0: Certainly. And anesthesia is uh, the perfect specialty for locums because you don't build up your own uh, roster of patients. You can pretty easily be plugged into any system. It's maybe a little bit more tricky with computer electronic health records than that. Maybe you need a, a day or two of training that wasn't an issue 10 years ago, 12 years ago when I did it. But yeah, it's really a, a nice way to see what different places are like. And it, you know, a lot of those places that need short-term help, what they really need is long-term help, but they'll take what they can get. And so it might be more like a working interview, whether you realize it or not. And most of the places, and I I took anywhere from a one-week job to a three-week job to a nine-month job, uh, and they were all interested in having me stay on uh, longer or perhaps permanently, uh, depending on the situation. So you might just find yourself a really good job and have an opportunity to know everyone you're going to work with and see any maybe surprises that you might not uh, learn about on just a regular one day, two day interview with the group.
1: Yeah. Did you find that as a locums physician, there were any unique challenges or I'm thinking specifically, you know, having like community with your coworkers, having friends at work, was it isolating at all?
0: I I think it was the opposite in some ways because you're the one new guy, right? You know, and so you stand out and then people are interested in knowing how you got to be in this little town at age 30 doing this uh, job. And so, I got to meet a lot of people and made some really good friends in our travels and you know, I still keep in touch with uh, some of the docs I work with uh, today, even though I haven't maybe seen them in person in 10 years. So yeah, I, I don't think that's much of an issue and you know, there's a good side too, to being a little bit distant in some ways, at least when it comes to the politics of the place, you know, the expectations of you are not the same as the expectations of a full time permanent employee. So. You know, you're not going to uh, be asked to do a whole lot more than the clinical work that you're being paid to do.
1: So you mentioned that you and your wife um, are, sounds like of one accord, or at least you've gotten a lot of, uh, you've communicated well over the years with regards to money and have developed a common vision. I'm curious, in the context of pursuing FI, financial independence, um, how has that played out for you guys? Have you always been eye to eye on that and, and supported one another in that? Or did one have to kind of get the other on board? as far as uh, you know, moving towards being free of full-time employment?
0: You know, the way it happened for us, I figured I'd probably work at least until our kids were out of the house. Uh, and that's uh, not for another 10 years or so for me right now. And financial independence, when I actually learned the term and the math behind it, I realized that we pretty much had it. Uh, all we needed was uh, to free up the kind of illiquid uh, assets in our house that we'd built on the water. And once that sold, a few months after, maybe a year after I uh, learned about this whole concept, then we really had that 25 times our spending right then and there. And so it was really at the point that I could say we're financially independent that I told my wife, hey, by the way, I don't have to go to work. She's like, no, yeah, I see you on the schedule. Well, yeah, I know I'm going to, but we really don't have to you know that's where we're at a place where this is uh looking optional and i didn't necessarily want to be locked into the current budget and have some charitable aspirations and wasn't uh mentally prepared to walk away from a career that actually i enjoy at least you know parts of it so it's been really about four years since that first conversation uh, maybe three or four and i'll be leaving my current gig nine months eight months from now
1: awesome congratulations so if we if we trace the full timeline just for listeners who aren't as familiar with your story you you went to training obviously in florida and then you took a first roles in attending were you around like late 20s or 30 early 30s at this point
0: i finished residency at age at 30. 30 okay yeah. so
1: 30 years old you're doing locums for two years and then you're practicing full-time at, at different practices uh, for another eight-ish years, is that about right? Eight or nine?
0: Yeah, that's about right. It was about ten years.
1: Okay, so so age forty as a practicing anesthesiologist, you you have this epiphany one day is like, "Hey, babe, like I I we're there." <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> that that must have been. Yeah, um... we sold the house. I think it goes September, and I turned forty in November. So you kind of it sounds like you stumbled into this. It was it was an epiphany, like you said. That's a good word.
1: And I heard uh, on one of the other podcast interviews you did recently talking about. Uh, your family background and the way that your sounds like your dad is a dentist, even though he earned a good living, was able to, and your mom as well, raise you guys in a way that that allowed you to accidentally realize (laughs) as a 40 year old anesthesiologist, you know, we we have a lifestyle such that we've saved enough. um, We've been frugal enough. We've been wise with our expenses. And we've earned enough to be able to not need to rely on money anymore. Talk a little bit about your background and your family and the way that that's played into this journey for you.
0: Sure. Yeah, like you mentioned, my my dad was a dentist, and his dad was a dentist, and uh, my brother talked about being a dentist, and so I I went a little different route. But yeah, so growing up, uh, you know, I, he made a good enough living where we we probably could have uh, looked and acted a little more wealthy than we were, but that's uh, really not not how we live. My dad had. Blue collar friends. We went shopping at garage sales and thrift stores, and we'd check out the scratch and dent at Best Buy. You know, we didn't pay full price for anything. That was kind of the way it worked. You know, even our vacations. I know when we finally got to go to Disney World when I was 14 or 15, we did a, a fly drive deal because in the spring, the rental car companies want to get their cars up north. And so we, Flew from Minnesota to Orlando and then drove the car back for, you know, probably half the price of a round trip.
1: It's a real family bonding experience there, sounds like.
0: And I'm not saying, I'm like oh, it's so rough. We had to drive from Florida after going to Disney World. But, you know, they were always looking for ways to make their dollar stretch a bit further. And I grew up with that as a uh, a value in my life. So we try not to pay retail for much of anything ourselves.
1: Yeah. And you you told this other story that I, I really resonated with, because I literally had an identical experience where I, as a child, my dad gave us these three little jars with these, th- I can still picture them with three little black lids and duct tape around them. And one says save, one says give, and one says spend. And it's this, uh, you know, early on, I remember I'd get $3 a week for an allowance and I put $1 in each jar. And uh, it sounds like early on, they they were cultivating in you this healthy respect for and ability to handle money yep i got an allowance
0: from i don't know probably about first grade and uh yeah the jars that's exactly what we do i got it from the book uh, the opposite of spoiled i don't recall the author's name at the moment but yeah he he talked about that idea and so we do that with our kids a dollar in each jar and they can spend one of those dollars but Uh, They can save some of those dollars, and then we have them give to a a charity of their choice at the end of the year. Um, And then with the saving money, we give them 1% interest on any money that they haven't spent over the years, and that includes gifts from Christmas and birthdays and First Communion and anything else where people have, have written checks. And so you know they're they're getting to the point where they're close to uh, $1000 in their account and every month they get 1% so that 800 is now 808 then it becomes 816 and change. you
1: said every month they get 1% oh that's <laughs>
0: every month they get 1% That's a great rate of return <laughs> So I'm like because you didn't touch your money this month here's $8 and that's you know that's better than the 4 they got for the weekly Yeah, that's a great strategy.
1: Yeah, something my wife and I talk about, you know, when when we have kids is like how do we how to raise kids without being spoiled and to have a healthy respect for money in a context when, you know, we're, we're going to be uh, a high income earning couple trying to raise kids that way. And I, I'm sure that's a real challenge. Right. But it seems like you guys have managed it really well.
0: Talking about money is important. You know, it's, uh, it shouldn't be a taboo topic, especially within the family. We tell them, don't repeat these conversations we have, but we tell them what thing costs, you know, when we, we travel and we travel with them quite a bit. And we let them know, well, this is what the plane ticket costs. Well, this rental car also costs money. It was this much. Uh, the hotel is free tonight because we used a certain credit card. But <laughs> if we were paying and like we're going to pay for the Air- Airbnb, you know, next week, it's $138 per day. So uh, they, you know, seed the cost of not just the groceries that we eat, but also the cost of the electricity that we buy and and everything else. So that there's really no, uh, no big surprises for them. And they understand that. Pretty much everything we do in life <laughs> darn near costs money in one way or another, whether it's, it's free because we pay taxes or it's uh, you know, X amount of dollars.
1: Yeah. Um, so I want to pivot back to the career questions for a moment. And I know one of the challenges uh, that young physicians face in anesthesia specifically is um, not having the information to ask good questions when you're vetting prospective employers. To To understand the details of compensation and the details of job description. And I'm curious, it sounds like you had a handful. I mean, in addition to your locums experiences where you were seeing different work environments, you also moved to a few different full time roles in, in the eight year period you weren't attending before reaching financial independence. So I'm curious, at those decision points, when you were taking those jobs, did you find that you had adequate information or that you were well informed about what awaited you? Or were you finding that, oh man, I'm three months in and I didn't realize the call schedule meant this and I didn't realize the comp model was that and didn't understand the implications of those things?
0: I think people were pretty transparent with me when, and I you know, did know which questions to ask. Uh, I certainly wanna know what my schedule is going to be before uh, deciding on a job. And so, yeah, I think I had those things pretty well figured out. And I should go back and explain. I guess I did already talk about one place going bankrupt and the hospital closing. That's why I had to find a second full-time job. And we did that, you know, in kind of short notice. And the places we really wanted to be didn't have openings. And so we worked uh, a couple years a little bit out west. And it was a good place, but not the best place for us. And when a job opened up close to family in northern Minnesota, uh, we jumped at the opportunity. So I've had three, you know, quote unquote permanent full-time jobs, uh, which was certainly not by design, but that's just the way things work out sometimes. But as far as getting those questions answered, uh, you know, the docs and the uh, administrators that I've talked to have been been helpful. So I, I didn't really feel like I had any surprises. Uh, it also helped that I worked locums at two of the three jobs where I took a permanent job. My first one, I had been a locum for months and months before I agreed to come back. And my current job I took in January of 2014. I interviewed in 2013. Um, but I'd worked there in 2007 as a locum way back when. So I already knew the chief and they knew me. And I said, hey, I'm looking for a job. I see you have an opening. They You know, and it was uh, almost a formality when I went through the interview. So I knew what to expect when I was coming here, too.
1: Have you perceived over time, as you've seen, you know, different geographic locales and been uh, in practicing medicine for you know 15 plus years now, that uh, financial literacy among physicians has changed and perhaps improved? Because I think we're in what I would call the golden age of financial information. It's so accessible, but sometimes it's hard to quiet the noise and discern the reliable sources of information at times.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. There are a number of excellent websites. You know, I have one. So does the White Coat Investor, who I mentioned. Passive Income MD has a uh, great site on real estate and that passive income. But we're just uh, three among 70 some uh, physicians now writing on their own blogs uh, about personal finance topics. And when I finished residency in 2006, there were zero. Right. And I know Wealthy Doc came along maybe in 2007 or 2008, uh, the White Coat Investor, not till 2011. Uh, and even when I started, just not even three years ago, there were probably five, maybe six uh, uh, doctors doing this. So not even 10% of what there is now less than three years later. So it's great, there's so much information. There are Facebook groups, there are forums, there are websites, there are articles coming out every day to kind of help other physicians learn from other physicians. And, uh, you know, when I used to read about personal finance stuff, it was pretty much like USA today, money section, uh, money magazine, market watch. I, I, that probably wasn't even around back then, but yeah. So it's, yeah, you read money magazine. It's hard to know what's really pertinent to your situation. Whereas you read what other doctors are doing, you know, you ask questions in the Facebook group or, uh, like Mister Forum, and you're getting other doctors telling you, "Well, here's what you ought to do. Here's what you should know. Here are some resources to help you."
1: Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, I'm sure doctors may look at you and think, "Wow, he's this guy's made it. He's done it right. He's figured it out." Uh, I'm curious how how you you would react to that, and maybe let us in on a little bit of what your investment philosophy or cash flow philosophy is that has landed you in this place which you currently find yourself?
0: I think a lot of doctors probably look at me and then they say, oh, he's he's doing it all wrong. He, he doesn't even spend six figures a year. Like, What kind of life is that? And I say, that's a great life. We spend, I don't know, 10, 12 weeks a year traveling and buy everything we care to have and living in a nice house on the Mississippi River right now. So what I've done, I mentioned it maybe briefly with talk about the bowl heads and that, but I'm invested in pretty simple passive index funds. I have a little bit of slicing and dicing and tilting where I have maybe a little more small cap value stocks and emerging market stocks than uh, they represent in total cap weight of the market. But, and I don't think that stuff really matters much. The, the key really has, but I'm just, saving a lot more than the average position. So I would guess on average, I've probably invested more money than I've spent since I finished training. And so living on half or less of what you bring in is going to get you to financial independence pretty quickly, almost regardless of what you invest in, as long as you don't do anything like, you know, really risky, like everything in Bitcoin a year ago, for example. But whether you get 0% or 5% or 15%, uh, over 10 years, it doesn't make a huge difference, right? Over a lifetime, it will. But when most of your net worth is coming from what you put in and what you're earning, uh, the returns don't matter quite as much over the relatively short to medium period.
1: Absolutely agree. I'm glad to hear you say that. I th- I think... One of the challenges for young physicians, especially, is controlling the cash flow, especially at the outset, when all of their peers are coming into these paychecks that were five or six times bigger than anything you've ever seen, and being able to continue, at least for a little while, to delay gratification the way that they've done, in many cases, for you know a decade longer than their peers already, but preserving that cash flow and funneling it in a productive direction to do exactly what you just described, uh, lay a solid financial foundation for the future.
0: I don't think I appreciate quite how much doing welcomes really did help me in that regard because I didn't really have anything I could spend money on. Our only home for most of that period was actually my one-bedroom condo in Gainesville, and that was rented out. And so we had our stuff in storage, and I couldn't buy anything. I guess I could have bought a car, but we were getting a rental wherever we went. So yeah, and so I just got into that uh, habit of getting a paycheck, depositing it, getting a paycheck, depositing it and spending a little bit of money on, on travel in between jobs and, uh, you know, checking out restaurants wherever we're at. But it really probably got me into the mindset.
1: And in that context, in, in doing a lot of this blocking and tackling right for a long time, and just rinse and repeat, how much time would you say right now you spend thinking about your investment portfolio?
0: Yeah, well, you can kind of set it and forget it. I think it's a good idea to have a set asset allocation, and you could expand that into a An IPS, you know, investment policy statement, but which is just a guide that tells you, okay, here's what you should be doing with your money each year. And you revisit that once a year, make sure you're doing what you said you would do and make any revisions that might make sense. But you really shouldn't change things up very often. And so if I wasn't writing about money, I probably wouldn't think about it, do anything active with it more than an hour a month.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you work with a financial planner, Leif? I do not. Would you recommend that others uh, who are disposed to do the reading on white code and other places, uh, you know, kind of do that themselves and and sort of take the bull by the horns, or or maybe consider consulting with a professional? And if so, you know, how do they how do they know who to talk to?
0: Right. Well, most people are not going to have the time or interest, and you, you kind of have to have both to really read a few books and, and read the you know, blogs and listen to the podcasts and kind of get a good grip on what you have. And that can happen somewhat slowly. It can happen over the course of months probably to get enough knowledge if you have the interest and time to do so, to manage your own investments. But you're probably going to make some mistakes. Hopefully they're small and hopefully they can be fixed pretty easily. And uh, so it just depends. If you have no interest, interest in figuring this stuff out, I would recommend working with a good fiduciary fee-only advisor. And how do you find them? That's a good question. I mean, I've got a list of recommended advisors on my site. You're obviously an advisor, and uh, I'm sure you can recommend some sites too, do the FINRA background check on people, make sure they haven't gotten in trouble in the past and and look at their fees, make sure the fees are easy to find on the website, or you can request them and, and see exactly where the money will go, how you're being charged and what you're actually getting for the money that you spend. Because in the beginning, when you don't have a whole lot of assets, so you have less than $500,000 or million dollars to your name, and then 1% of your assets that you might pay to an advisor, that's, you know, under $10,000 a year. But once you become financially independent, and maybe you have two or three million dollars, if you're paying 1% per year, now you're spending 20 or $30,000 per year for that same financial planning. And at this point, it may be almost on autopilot. So that's maybe not a good idea.
1: I'm interested, you know, your observations in the context of the generation of physicians coming in behind you, who, uh, you know, burnout is obviously a very popular topic in the medical community right now. How do you perceive that financial, laying a solid financial foundation helps to address some of the stresses and the anxiety and the the burnout that is facing different parts of the medical community?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Justin. And I think that there is a, a real connection between um, your uh, approach to money and uh, becoming burned out and be you know rescuing yourself from burnout that if you are in a position where you're feeling stuck in your job and it's maybe something you loved five near, years ago and a year ago you tolerated it and now it's just too much but your lifestyle demands that you continue to make that same income you know you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place and if you can get yourself And it doesn't have to be full financial independence, but just enough financial runway where you can afford to take a sabbatical without pay for a year or six months and try to get things right and then come back and work in in the way that you want. That's certainly helpful. Uh, You know, once you become closer to financially independent, once you know that uh, you can live without this income for quite a long time then you can start to cut out some of the things that bother you the most now it will depend on what specialty you are in what job you have but maybe you can stop taking call or take less call maybe you can say i'm not going to take cardiac cases or the transplants anymore if you're in an academic center and uh, you know there are a lot of different ways you know maybe you find a new job at an outpatient surgical center again talking anesthesia here If you're an orthopedist maybe you don't want to do the total joints anymore maybe uh, if you're a general surgeon no more vascular no more thoracic cases that kind of thing so you might have a better better angle to craft the job you want and you also have some leverage when you say well if you say no i can walk away if you don't have any money saved up and you're spending as much as you're earning or close to it then you don't have much leverage because if someone says no You can't take that sabbatical. You have to keep doing these cases. You're going to take the same call as everyone else. You have to say, okay, I'll do that.
1: Yeah. It makes sense. Have you seen any of your colleagues or other physicians that you know who you've seen maybe struggling with burnout in a way that is attached to financial decisions or maybe debt that has been overwhelming for them?
0: I've seen doctors that are in their sixties and seventies and can't retire that, that happens, you know, uh, Maybe they've been through a divorce or two and there are some other extenuating circumstances. Uh, and you have mentioned debt. Of course, student loan debt, the average is 200000 It's not unusual to see three or 400000 if uh, someone went through private schools. And so that can really get you in a place you have a big, deep hole to dig out of and uh, hopefully you find a job that you love where you can make some good money and make real progress towards eliminating those early in your career so they don't hang over you like a mortgage for 25, 30 years, or get them forgiven via the public service loan forgiveness uh, option, which uh, more and more physicians are are able to take advantage of with um, you know, so many of us being employed by quote-unquote not-for-profit hospitals.
1: So uh, I want to wrap things up here, Leaf. and in, in closing, I'm curious to hear your answer to my final question here, which is being a physician and an anesthesiologist particularly is a very demanding profession that requires a lot of sacrifice. So I'd love to hear a story reflecting on one of your proudest moments as a physician that's made you glad that you've put in all the time and effort. Feel free to answer this too with regards to your blog and the time and effort that you've put in to sharing financial insights with the medical community and how you've seen that pay dividends in the lives of others.
0: Sure. Uh, Yeah, In regards to the blog, I do get a lot of emails and messages. Just thank you so much. You really helped us. Figure out where we want to go. You know the next direction in our lives, and we're making these big changes, and that's really rewarding. But as a physician, I finally took part in a surgical mission trip uh, down in Honduras in May of last year, and uh, worked hard early morning till um, you know after dinner time most days. But we did some great work for people that otherwise would have nowhere to turn. And I was able to bring my family along with me, and they volunteered uh, both at the little surgical center that we were at and on the children's home where this uh, facility is located, where several hundred children are actually raised. Uh, And we heard many great stories and helped a lot of people. It felt really good to uh, use my skills to do something other than uh, just make money here in the States. So we're actually going back again in May of 2019 uh, to help out at the uh, same facility, which is uh, via a group called One World Surgery at uh, NPH Honduras. So I uh, highly recommend it if you uh, doctors out there have not done any sort of uh, humanitarian work. That's a great organization to uh, go out and do
1: something. Awesome. Well, thanks for those thoughts. Dr. Leif Dallane, thank you very much for joining us today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast.
0: Thank you for having me, Justin. It's been a great chat.
1: Hey, Justin here. This may shock you to learn, but I am actually not a full-time podcaster. I also run a financial planning company called Quantify Planning, where I work closely with anesthesia and pain docs to build and implement customized financial plans. If you're interested in working with a financial planner who knows many of the ins and outs of your profession, shoot me an email or head on over to quantifyplanning.com for more information. If you're a resident or fellow, I can also offer you a free student loan analysis if you're interested, but there might be a waiting list, so check out the link over there to see. If you're interested in learning more about the topics we discussed today, head over to anesthesiasuccess.com to join our community of residents and attendings and others to ask a question or get more free resources. If and only if you like this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe. Thank you very much for listening to the Anesthesia Success Podcast.